Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. One absolutely central feature to both the narrative setting and to the plot of Philip K. Dick's novel to Android's Dream of Electric Sheep is the status of animals, both real and electric. We could say fake, and that wouldn't be completely off, although people do, in many respects, relate to these electric, electronic replica animals as if they were the real thing and they're made as similar as as possible to the real thing so in this narrative setting animals have become pretty rare in part because of the catastrophe that has happened not just to animals but to the environment in general and to human beings as well so here's the setting no one remembered today why the war had come about or who if anyone had won the dust that had contaminated most of the planet its surface had originated in no country, and no one, even the wartime enemy, had planned on it. First, strangely, the owls had died. At the time, it had seemed almost funny, the fat, fluffy white birds lying here and there in yards and on the streets coming out no earlier than twilight as they had while alive. The owls escaped notice. Medieval plagues had manifested themselves in a similar way in the form of many dead rats. This plague, however, had descended from above after the owls of Of course, the other birds followed, but by then the mystery had been grasped and understood. A meager colonization program had been underway, so they they continue that. And it talks a little bit about, you know, the carrot and stick of emigrating. But the key thing here is that not only is human life becoming somewhat precarious, you know, men have to walk around in lead cod pieces, and there's tests to make sure that people haven't been degenerating in other respects. The animals have in large part begun to die off. And there are replicas, as we're going to see, of owls, but there's very few animals left, and the ones that are left are quite valuable. So animals themselves are, you know, in this book that gets talked about it many times, Sydney's Animal and Fowl Catalog, which comes out in a number of supplements. People carry it around with them and whip it out so they can see, you know, what's actually available and what the costs ought to be. Sort of like what Americans, at least, I don't know if this is common in other places have Kelly's Blue Book for car values. You can get it out and you can actually go online and check it out as well. And there's another really important non-economic feature to this as well. Human beings, we can say definitely that throughout most of our history, while some people are empathetic and caring towards animals, other people view them as mere beasts of burden, resources to be exploited. There are even a lot of people who are abusive and even sadistic towards animals, or selectively so, right? So dogs and cats, we treat them nice, but rats, oh, that's vermin, and a lot of people don't like spiders. We're going to talk about spiders in a bit, but they'll, you know, like ladybugs and dragonflies and stuff like that. In this world, 
this world of Descartes and androids and stuff like that, most human beings do in fact have empathy and exhibit care towards animals. And that's part of what sets human beings, at least the ones who aren't institutionalized, apart from the androids who lack empathy. In fact, that can be made the entire basis for a test to distinguish these otherwise very, very realistic human mimicking androids apart from genuine human beings. And this human empathy and care extends even to electric animals as a substitute. Although it's it's felt to be a little bit déclassé, a little bit shameful to have electric animals in place of the real ones. So Rick Deckard has a number of connections with animals. We see in chapter one, there's this scene where he's talking with his neighbor, Bill Barbour, who has a horse who's actually pregnant. And Rick says, wow, pretty soon you're going to have two horses. And Rick has got his electric sheep. This is, you know, the title, do androids dream of electric sheep, right? And now notice this is kind of interesting. He says, of course, some of their animals undoubtedly consisted of electronic circuitry fake he, of course, had never nosed into the matter any more than they, his neighbors, had pried into the real workings of his sheep. Nothing could be more impolite. To say, is your sheep genuine, would be a worse breach of manners than to inquire whether a citizen's teeth hair or internal organs would test out authentic. And so he's talking with this neighbor who's got a much bigger, better animal who's actually pregnant, who's gone to great expense. He says, I bought some of the highest quality fertilizing plasma available in California through inside contacts I have with the state animal husbandry board. And Rick then says, ever thought of selling your horse? And Barbara said it would be immoral to sell my horse. Well, sell the colt then. Having two animals is more immoral than not having any. And they start, you know, discussing it. And it turns out that you can't really get a horse that easily. It takes a lot of connections. The barber says, there's a reason why Sydney's doesn't have any Percher and Colts in stock. Percher and Colts don't just change hands. They're too scarce, even relatively inferior ones. So, you know, this is a central idea. Rick then actually reveals to his neighbor that it's a fake sheep. And he says, see, you understand now why I want your colt so badly? And then Rick tells a little bit of origin story here. Barbara says, has it always been this way? And Rick says, no, I had a real sheep originally. My wife's father gave it to us outright when he emigrated. Then about a year ago, remember that time I took it to the vet? You were up here that morning when I came out and find it lying on its side and it couldn't get up. Sheep get strange diseases or put it in another way. Sheep get a lot of diseases, but the symptoms are always the same. The sheep can't get up. There's no way to tell how serious it is, whether it's a sprained leg or the animal is dying of tetanus. That's what mine died of, tetanus. It ate a wire off of a hay bale, got tetanus, a scratch, and then it died. And so Rick then had a fake sheep made in its place. And he tells us a little bit about what's going on. Before that though, he says, I've put as much time and attention into caring for it as I did when it was real, but, Barber says, it's not the same. But almost. You feel the same doing it. You have to keep your eye on it exactly as you did when it was really alive because they break down and then everyone in the building knows. I've had it at the repair shop six times, mostly little malfunctions. But if anyone saw them, you know, if the voice tape broke or got fouled and it wouldn't stop buying, they'd recognize it as a mechanical rather than an, or an organic breakdown. And so that's that's a, an interesting little vignette there. Um, 
as Deckard finds that he's got the possibility of coming into some money, he considers purchasing a fake ostrich and engages in some wheeling and dealing, trying to get the shop to come down significantly on the price. He doesn't end up doing that, but after he does retire, or he's involved in the retiring since he doesn't actually do all of the killing himself, the three androids and has the bounties coming to him, he uses that as a down payment to purchase a goat. And there's a very interesting discussion that's taking place between Deckard and the people who are selling them. He starts out by talking about, he's he's at a store and he says, you know, what about those rabbits over there? And he says, you know, if you have a down payment of the, the amount of money that you've got, I can make you an owner of something a lot better than a pair of rabbits. What about a goat? Rick says, well, I haven't thought about a goat. And now notice how it's being discussed. May I ask if this represents a new price bracket for you? It's sort of like pricing cars or something like that. And Rick asks, well, what are the advantages to goats? The distinct advantage of a goat is that it can be taught to butt anyone who tries to steal it. And then Rick says, well, that's not an awful lot of help. And then he says, a goat is loyal and it has a free natural soul, which no cage can chain up. There is one exceptional additional feature about goats. Oftentimes when you invest in an animal, you find and take it home, you find some morning it's eaten something radioactive and died. A goat isn't bothered by contaminated quasi-foodstuffs. It can eat eclectically, even items that would fell a cow or horse or most especially a cat. As a long-term investment, we feel that the goat, especially the female, offers unbeatable advantages to the serious animal owner. So there's this patter going on between them. This is a good salesman, right? And so Rick actually does buy the goat and, you know, puts the money down, signs a contract, then takes it home to to his wife and he tells her come up to the roof I want to show you something you bought an animal you shouldn't have gotten it without me I have a right to participate in the decision and he says I wanted it to be a surprise and then she she comes over and she she sees the goat and she circles around she says is it really real it's not false he says absolutely real unless they swindled me and she says it's a goat a black Nubian goat and Rick says female so maybe later on we can mate her and we'll get milk out of her of which we can make cheese and this really raises her spirits she put her hand gently on his shoulder leaned toward him and kissed him much love and very much pleasure she's talking about her her life and he asks her does this cure your depression it cures mine and then she says something really quite interesting yes this cures my depression now we can tell everybody that our sheep is fake and rick says well we don't have to do that and she says but we can't see now we have nothing to hide What we've always wanted has come true. It's a dream. Now, unfortunately, the goat is going to arrive at a uh, uh, bad end. Uh, I won't reveal all of that to you. You can read the book and find out. There is a third animal that winds up playing an important role, uh, which is a toad which Deckard finds out in the desert. He's very despondent. He's out in the wasteland, and he's about to call his wife. And then he says that he set the receiver back down and did not take his eyes from the spot that had moved outside the car, the bulge in the ground among the stones. An animal, he said to himself. 
and his heart lugged under the excessive load, the shock of recognition. I know what it is, he realized. I've never seen one before, but I know it from the old nature films they show on government TV. They're extinct, he said to himself. Swiftly, he dragged out his much-creased Sydney's, turned the pages with twitching fingers. Toad, Buffonidae, all varieties. E, extinct for years now. The critter most precious to Wilbur Mercer along with the donkey. So he gets a box and he goes out and gets the toad and puts it into the box. He brushes away the loose soil from toad. He says it did not seem to object, but of course it was not aware of his existence. When he lifted the toad out, he felt its peculiar coolness in his hands. Its body seemed dry and wrinkled. And then he says to himself, so this is what Mercer sees. Life, which we can no longer distinguish, life carefully buried up to its forehead in the carcass of a dead world. In every cinder of the universe, Mercer probably perceives inconspicuous life. Now I know, he thought. And once having seen through Mercer's eyes, I will probably never stop. This is producing, things have produced a important change in him. And the toad allows this change to be sort of reflected upon and catalyzed. He gets home. He brings it into his wife. She looks at it in the box. You know, he's totally exhausted. He's resting. And then she finds out, oh, it's actually an electric toad. But it's still good to have. And she flipped the panel open. Oh, his face fell by degrees. Yeah, I see. You're right. He gazed mutely at the false animal. He took it back from her, fiddled with the legs as if baffled. And then he carefully replaced it in the box. And she says, maybe I shouldn't have told you about it being electrical. She put her hand out, touched his arm. She felt guilty, sensing the effect it had on him, the change. No, Rick said, I'm glad to know. Or rather, he became silent. I prefer to know. And here in this passage, this chapter, we actually get one of the best lines of the entire book. So he says, I'll be okay. The spider Mercer gave the chicken head Isidore, which we're going to talk about as well. It probably was artificial too, but it doesn't matter. The electrical things have their lives too paltry as those lives are. The Rosen Association is this massive conglomerate with lots and lots of power and connections. And Descartes actually goes there early on in the, the story to check out the, the new androids, right? And meets Rachel Rosen. And while they're there, it seems like, you know, it's so typical for what corporations get away with, they have access to animals that otherwise would be gone. So a powerful corporation, he realized, would be able to afford this. In the back of his mind, he anticipated such a collection. He walked quietly away from the girl toward the closest pen. Already he could smell them. The several scents of the creature standing or sitting or in the case of what appeared to be a raccoon asleep. Never in his life had he personally seen a raccoon. He knew the animal only from 3D films shown on television. He brings out his Sydney's and looks up the raccoon with all its price listing. Sydney's catalog simply listed the price at which the last transaction involving a raccoon had taken place. It was astronomical. His name is Bill, the girl said from behind him. Bill the raccoon. We acquired him just last year from a subsidiary corporation. And then Rick says, a major manufacturer of androids invests its surplus capital on living animals. And then Rachel Rosen said, look at the owl. Here, I'll wake it up for you. 
She started towards a small distant cage in the center of which jutted up a branching dead tree. There are no owls, he started to say, or so we've been told. And he says, it's artificial. And then she says, no, it's not. But Sydney's listening. The girl said, we don't buy from Sydney's or from any animal dealer. All our purchases are from private parties and the prices we pay aren't reported. Also, we have our own naturalists. They're working up in Canada. There's still a lot of forest left, comparatively speaking. Enough for small animals and once in a while, a bird. And so... There's another interesting reflection here. He thought about his need for a real animal. Within him, an actual hatred once more manifested towards his electric sheep, which he had to tend, had to care about as if it lived. The tyranny of an object, it doesn't know I exist. He had never thought about this before, the similarity between an electric animal and an Andy. And he asked, if you sold your owl, how much would you want for it? And they said, we would never sell our owl. Now, they try to use the owl as a way to bribe him. And at the very end of this, discussion when, you know, he is basically flipped the trap on them, right? They say, how would you like to, to own an owl? And at the very end, he's leaving and Elden Rosen says, it doesn't matter. The owl is artificial. There are no owls. So it's all been kind of a, a sham. Speaking of shams, we have Isidore, a major character in this, and the Van Ness Pet Hospital. They are part of the fake that takes in electric sheep or you know, cats or whatever, and then they give them whatever checkups, treatments they need there and return them to their owners. In this, this chapter, chapter seven, a real cat is dying and Isidore has it and thinks that it's actually a fake and he brings it to the animal hospital and a lot of back and forth discussion ensues. Sloat actually, who the owner says, it's the waste that gets me, the loss of one more living creature. Couldn't you tell Isidore? Didn't you notice the difference? And then Milt, one of the other people there says, I don't think as Isidore can tell the difference. To him, they're all alive. False animals included. He probably tried to save it. And then Isidore has to uh, make a video call to the owners, the Pilsens. The wife is there. The, the husband had like thrown the cat into his arms and left. And they go back and forth deciding about what they're going to do. And as it turns out, she's amenable to having a fake made for her husband, who hopefully won't actually notice the difference. But there's reflection in here saying, yeah, if you're a, a pet owner, you're going to notice the difference. We also have Phil Resch, potentially an android, one of the people that is, is working at the fake police station. And we find that Phil is really worried about this. He says, it's not just false memory structures. I own an animal, not a false one, but the real thing. I love the squirrel Deckard. Every goddamn morning I feed it and change its papers, you know, clean up its cage. And then in the evening when I get off work, I let it loose in my apt and it runs all over the place. It has a wheel in its cage. Ever seen a squirrel running inside a wheel and keeps going on and a little bit later in chapter 12, Phil says, did you ever hear of an Andy, an android, having a pet of any sort? And Deckard says, for some obscure reason, he felt the need to be brutally honest. Perhaps he had already begun preparing himself for what lay ahead. In two cases that I know of, Andy's owned and cared for animals, but it's rare. 
From what I've been able to learn, it generally fails. The Andy is unable to keep the animal alive. The animals require an environment of warmth to flourish, except reptiles and insects. And so Phil says, would a squirrel need that? An atmosphere of love? Because Buffy is doing fine, as sleek as an otter. I comb and groom him every day. And so the question is, is this revelatory of the fact that Phil Resch isn't an, an android or is he some sort of weird exception? We also see Isidore engaging with the androids who have effectively taken over his place and a, as it's narrated, rather horrible experience that's going on both for the spider and for Isidore himself. He finds a spider in the, here we go, something small moved in the dust. He dropped the suitcases. He whipped out a plastic medicine bottle, which like everyone else, he carried for just this, a spider undistinguished but alive. And he puts it in there, tells the androids, I found a spider. And then what is their reaction? Pris says, you know what I think, JR? I think it doesn't need all those legs. Eight, Irmagard Beatty said. Why couldn't it get by on four? Cut off four and see. So she gets out cuticle scissors and a weird terror strikes J.D. Isidore. They, they take the spider and Pris says, it probably won't be able to run as fast, but there's nothing for it to catch around here anyway. It'll die anyhow. And Isidore begins pleading and uh, he says, please don't mutilate it. And she starts snipping off the spider's legs bit by bit. Then when it only has four legs, it stops crawling around on the table and they get out a flame to try to get it to move, right? Roy gets out a, a book of matches. The spider crawls feebly away. Irmagard says, I was right, didn't I say it could walk with only four legs? And then she peers at Isidore and says, what's the matter? You didn't lose anything we'll pay you. What's it called? The Sydney's catalog says, don't be so grim. So he goes to the empathy box and he has an experience in which Mercer brings the spider out of the dust and gives it to him. And he goes out of the apartment, puts the spider down. This is where he encounters the bounty hunter, Rick Deckard, who then is going to go in and kill the killers, kill the androids. But it shows you something about the mentality, at least of these androids, that they show zero empathy towards this tiny, vulnerable and valuable creature. So these are some of the high points and most interesting passages dealing with this important theme of animal life, both real and electric, in Android's dream of electric sheep. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.